It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Let us open our Bibles to John chapter 1, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and let us trust by God's grace we can finish this wonderful introduction, prologue or preamble, whatever you'd like to call it, that John gave us to introduce his Gospel. It is exciting, and for which we should praise the Lord that the high and lofty one has shown us his religion and called us unto it and prepared our hearts for it and sent his son to be our savior in it and preserved his words to us. We are so blessed. And yes, as the young man taught us this morning, we should praise the Lord often. I want just five verses this morning. Verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1 in the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord to us, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Amen. And amen. These five verses, concluding this introduction by John, are wonderful. Precious indeed. How many of them do you know by memory? How many of them have you sought to memorize in recent days so that you can read them or quote them to yourself when you don't have the Word of God handy? The verses declare that the Word of God of John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, was made flesh, and dwelt on earth. An incredible thing. God Himself dwelling on earth. What other personage, what other person of history, fame, or family should steal any of our attention, affection, that belongs to Him. In history, we have Bible history. Should we give Abraham the nod? Is Abraham a competitor to Christ? Not in Christ's opinion. Or John's opinion. They both said that if the Lord needed children of Abraham, He could raise them up from gravel. 
How about Moses? The founder of Old Testament religion and their great leader and prophet. Does he compare? Not according to the Bible. How about David, the man after God's own heart? Daniel, the man of prayer. John the Baptist, the greatest born of women. He knew better. He knew that he needed to decrease and Jesus needed to increase. How about the Apostle Paul? I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How about world history? Who are the greatest persons in world history? Now we're stooping, we're stooping to the bottom of the porcelain bowl in comparison to the names that I just mentioned. Ramses, Nebuchadnezzar, Hippocrates, Augustus, Genghis Khan, Henry V, Columbus, George Washington, Patton, Joel Osteen. We're stooping, and it's near blasphemy to even name these wretches in comparison to thy holy child, Jesus. How about those of fame? Do you want to tell me this morning about Steph Curry? Steph Curry would tell you to worship God. Warren Buffett? Tom Brady? If you're not a Brady fan, then the other guy? Let's see. I can't remember. Oh, Manning. Who do you want to compare to the glory of the founder of our religion? The Son of God. The Word of God made flesh. Full of grace and truth. Far greater than Moses. God manifest to us. How about Nathan Rothschild? Head of the London family of the Rothschild financial dynasty. Albert Einstein. John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the history of America, and he still stands as the richest man in the history of America, owning 3% of entire GDP. Today that would be $253 billion. Babe Ruth, John Paulson, my favorite hedge fund manager, who in 2007 realized that the people buying homes in America didn't deserve those homes, and that they wouldn't be able to pay and it would soon collapse. Using credit default agreements, was able to net himself six billion personal profits in that year. Nikola Tesla. What names do you want to compare to this name? Jesus of Nazareth. In religion, should we raise the names of Jonathan Edwards? He would tell us, worship God. Charles Spurgeon, John Kent, John Gill. How about your family? Is it your grandfather? Your father? I speak to my children. Mommy? Brother? A son? There's no one on earth. And there's no one in heaven that we should desire beside thee, O Lord. And thank Thee, O Lord, for coming to earth. 
This is akin to blasphemy to name any of those names in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. Full of grace and truth and a reformer of the highest order. The declarer of Almighty God. The Prince of Heaven. We need to know the divine being. God is not His name. But we need to know Him. And we need His religion so that we might make peace with Him. That we might please Him. That we might know what He has in store for us. It's all here. John 1, 14-18. We should always remember verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now let's look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh. This infinite being, Jehovah, the second person of that divine trinity, took on a human body in the womb of a virgin named Mary. So that the holy thing which was born of her, that seven-pound infant child that she birthed and laid in a manger is to be called the Son of God, conceived by the power of the highest and the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, so that it can be said of Him that the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him bodily. As your eyes would behold the body of Jesus of Nazareth, Inside that body, joined to it in what is a mysterious relationship that we can but read about and believe, was Almighty, infinite God that fills heaven and earth. So that Jesus could say in John 3.13 that while He was on earth, He was still in heaven at the same time in His divine nature. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God lived among men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The names that I have mentioned, the details of which you only know by speculative historians, if they're more than a month old. We have so much information about the Lord Jesus Christ and Him dwelling among us. We have historical information that is ex-biblical, outside the Bible, but we have so much recorded in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though we look at those Gospels and realize they are different than the Gospel of John, yet there is repetition there to tell us how important it is for us to learn and remember and embrace the day-to-day life of Jesus of Nazareth. What He did and what He said. How He responded to foe and friend. It's all there. We can see the character of God shining through in brilliant glory. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John would write in his first epistle, we looked on Him. We heard Him. We handled Him. We hugged Him. I laid on His bosom at supper. He would tell us in this gospel of His, 
and we beheld his glory. The apostles saw the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory in character. The glory in power. The glory in recognition and praise by Almighty God. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And this ties in those statements where God said audibly to earth, This is my beloved Son. Like the transfiguration. Like His baptism. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. God had never said those things before. God had never said, This is my Son, because He didn't have a Son until Mary gave Him a Son. Because the Son was made of a woman. Made under the law to redeem us that were under the law. Then after that parenthetical description of what the apostles saw, it says, full of grace and truth. Jesus of Nazareth is full of grace and truth. He is the founder of our religion. Thank you, Lord, for His grace. He is the founder of our religion. Thank you, Lord, for His truth. We have His gracious salvation, and we have the truth of the knowledge of God salvation, and eternal life, and what's coming next, and what came before. We have been told so much in the way of truth, arranged and ordered by this Son of God. Now verse 15. Verse 15, for your information and help, is a parenthetical element. It doesn't have parentheses. A parenthetical element in English doesn't have to have parentheses. It is an insertion by John in his writing about John the Baptist. In verse 16, he will return to his line of reasoning. Notice how verse 14 ends. Full of grace and truth. Notice how verse 16 starts. And of his fullness have all we received. That's the apostle John writing his own inspired thoughts in verse 14 and writing his own inspired thoughts in verse 16. In between, he wants to bring forth the announcement that was made by the great predecessor of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is John the Baptist. He has mentioned in verses 6 through 8 already that John was to bear witness of Jesus Christ, but he didn't say what that witness was. If you look back at 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know this is John Baptist. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So we have the word witness three times in verses 7 and 8 about this man named John that was the announcer for the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. Now verse 15 is going to tell us what this great announcer said about the one mentioned in verses 14. That is, the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among men as the only begotten Son of God. Here's what the great John the Baptist had to say. Jesus said, 
that there's never been a greater man born of women than John the Baptist. Why was he so great? For this announcement. Because when it comes to the rest of our gospel faith, the least in our church is greater than John the Baptist. Because he was so limited in his knowledge of the full scope of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by him, that even our children know more than John the Baptist did. John the Baptist in prison even sent to Jesus saying, Art thou the one that should come or do we look for another? Because his moment of glory was past. His moment of announcement was past. But I'll tell you, while his, his moment of announcement was upon him, there wasn't another declarer like him. He loved to see the Lord Jesus Christ walking among men and point him out, Behold, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 36. Behold, the Lamb of God! Exclamation point in verse 36. This was John the Baptist. But let's look at verse 15. John bare witness of Him. He was said to come as a witness, and John did exactly what he was supposed to do when he was sent from God. And he cried. Remember? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so he cried out loudly, boldly, of the one that was coming after him. And then they met. And then John baptized him. And then he loved to point out, there he goes, behold, the Lamb of God. And preachers ought to cry out. They ought to lift up their voices. The message is worth it. And the people of God are dull of hearing so many times because the Noise of the world drowns out the sound that we ought to be thinking. It drowns out the thoughts that we ought to be meditating upon. And so we need to have someone lift up their voice. John was great at it. John bare witness of him and cried saying, I want you to remember that these 18 verses are an introduction to the gospel. We're going to hear a lot more about John if we just continue reading. There's chunks here in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 5 about John the Baptist. We're just having him stuck in right now that before the Word of God was made flesh, an announcer was sent to earth from God, a special man. And here is what he said. And he lifted up his voice in doing it. This was he of whom I spake. His speaking was before Jesus came. But now he is in the presence. John, the apostle, is writing about when John the Baptist was in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was he of whom I spake before he was baptized. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. This is a wonderful declaration. Then John is going to go back in this condensed prologue to his thought from verse 14 about Jesus being full of grace and truth. This was he of whom I spake. Because now John is seeing Jesus and is in his presence. And he, this, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. 
we want to notice that John himself was pretty special. John was the result of a miracle birth. An angel sent from heaven to announce his birth. His name was given by God. What does John mean? Grace. Gracious gift. He was a Nazarite by his conduct. He was a baptizer. A very special man in the annals of human history recorded for us in the Bible, the predecessor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he was pretty special, but he said there's coming one after me that is preferred before me. He's greater than John. I am not worthy, John said in several places. Even Paul would preach this message. That he was not worthy to stoop down and loose the sandals of the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a preacher. Every preacher of the gospel should be willing and frequently do so. Get down to put Christ up. The preeminence has got to be the Lord Jesus Christ. No man on earth. We are but the asses of God to declare the glory of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John would say in chapter 3 and verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. And every minister should do that. And so the words of John saying, I am not worthy to stoop down and loose His shoes is fitting. True humility makes statements like that. And they're not made jesting. Abigail, the woman of good understanding, when she met David after his proposal for her to marry him, she said that she was not worthy to wash the feet of his servants. She didn't even presume to think that she could wash David's feet. And so we have John. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. He's greater in dignity than John ever was. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. After John, our apostle, introduces the word made flesh in verse 14, he wants to draw for one verse from that special man that was sent to be a witness of Jesus. And so he gives us one verse as to what John actually said in witness of the Son of God. And he said, He that cometh after me is preferred before me. And then he tells us one of those reasons, for he was before me. God has ordained that all preeminence should be given to his Son on earth. If you don't believe on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and follow him in obedience, you're making God a liar. I cannot wait, and I do it with great relish and excitement, and there is no remorse to see you meet him. When the Bible says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. I don't go around like some worrying and crying about those who do not want to believe. I pray for those to believe, but those that want to turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ, let them be anathema maranatha. John was prophet of the highest. Jesus Christ was son of the highest. John the Baptist was the minister of the new covenant. 
But Jesus Christ was the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus was, I mean, John, excuse me. John was made just like all other men are made. But the Word made all things, including John. John was inferior to the least in the church. Jesus is head and corner of that church. John leaped for joy by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. What comparisons if we just think for a few minutes. For He was before me. Let's make sure that in our church we always exalt the Lord Jesus Christ like John Baptist did. Let's make sure in our church we always denigrate ourselves like John Baptist did. Let Him have all the preeminence. Let us have none. No one. No pastor. No building committee. No deacons. No anyone. We're all the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sons of God by special adoption, predestinated adoption, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was John's pleasure to increase his young cousin at his decrease. Paul and Timothy were examples of exalting Christ. The Apostle Paul said he had no one else quite like Timothy that cared for Christ's things and not their own. That is a terrible indictment about men. But it's true. How many in this assembly, how many hearing my voice, care about the things of Christ more than the things of your life? Show us. Some that Paul knew, even in the churches of Jesus, were the opposite They were belly worshipers because they minded earthly things. It is a choice that you and I make to minimize self and abilities for Christ and His cross. And that is what we should glory in. Now the verse concludes by saying, For He was before me. He was before me. He's to be preferred before me because He was before me. And so here we have a comparison of eternality. Jesus was eternal. Remember, when the angel came and told Mary, you are going to conceive and bear a son, make sure you call his name Jesus. He's going to be the Son of God because he's going to be fathered by God. You won't need a man for this birth. And by the way, while I'm here talking to you and you're wondering if these things are true, your cousin Elizabeth, who's been barren for 50 years, she's conceived and she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. As soon as Gabriel disappeared, what did Mary do? I need to check this out. Because if I check this out and it's true, I'm sure it's going to happen to me. And so off she goes into the hill country and she finds Elizabeth and she's six months pregnant. So, John was born six months before his cousin Jesus was born. But John the Baptist who knew that well, said, He was before me. This is one of the first places where we have to rightly divide. Are we talking about His human nature or His divine nature? And there's so many of them in the Scriptures, and they're all so simple for the people of God that don't care about origin and His Greek Gnostic garbage. Which we will look at in detail on Wednesday evening, the Lord willing, by slides. For He was before me. That is just so beautiful. So short. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. 
Because he was before me. Well, how was a man who's born six months after you, John, before you? Because he was the Word of God. And what does it say? I need the first three words. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus in His divine nature was in the beginning. Is that before six months earlier? Yes. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is eternal God. Without qualification. Without derivation. Without generation. Without procession. Jesus is eternal God in His divine nature. For He was before me. John will repeat this. Look at verse 30 of this chapter. John, again, is saying, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is referred before me, for he was before me. So he's appealing to his deity to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Similar to this verse is where Jesus claimed to have existed before Abraham, but he did it in a unique way. He said before Abraham was, so he knew verb tenses, didn't he? Before Abraham was, I am. That's eternal God. That's the founder of our religion. The main thrust of these five verses are about the founder of our religion. And the religion that he brought was very different from Moses. Verse 17 is going to show us that. Our religion, God is not at a distance watching us. God came to earth. God dwelt on this planet in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He dwells now within our hearts by His, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He makes His abode with us. It's, it's it's incomprehensible to the, to the natural mind, but it's what the Bible teaches us that God Infinite Jehovah that inhabits eternity and all the other phrases of description that Matthew gave us earlier was on earth and is now in us by His Spirit. John was only of yesterday. Jesus was from of old, as Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us. If He's eternal, if Jesus is eternal... As these and other scriptures prove, then Jesus is fully God, Jehovah. That's where we stand. You know, because we deny the eternal sonship, they have the audacity in the confusion and ignorance of their minds to say that we are denying the deity of Jesus Christ. No, we are the ones protecting the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if your God was eternally generated by the first person in the Trinity, then he is a God and he's lesser than that first God that generated the second person. What in the world are we supposed to believe when the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4 to God about His holy child Jesus? Are we supposed to believe that the first person of the Trinity is the father of the little child that's the second person of the Trinity? Or is there a real child involved that grew up to be a man and He's the Son of God in His combined human and divine natures? We say 
by quoting Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He created all things and he's going to change all things. He's going to fold them up like a garment and get rid of this universe. But he endures forever and never changes. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. This is the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, going back to verse 14, where he introduced this thought by saying of Jesus Christ, he is full of grace and truth. Now he expands upon that, a little bit, and he'll explain what he primarily has in mind in verse 17. Verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received. What is his fullness? Grace and truth. And of that fullness. But you know, it's one thing for Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, to be full of grace and truth. It is another thing that we have received it. That is a huge blessing and a huge difference. We don't want grace and truth all locked up in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that uh, all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus our Lord in the heavenly places, but we want those disposed to us and given to us, and they've been given to us. And so it says, of His fullness, of that fullness of grace and truth, have all we received. What fullness? It's the grace and truth from verse 14. Great grace ordained Jesus to come for us. Great grace gifted Jesus Christ to do what He did for us. Great grace sent Him. For God so loved the world that He sent, He gave His only begotten Son. Great grace is what was given to Him to give to us. And that is eternal life. If you read the Bible, you see Psalm 68 And you see Acts chapter 2 and you see Ephesians chapter 4. When you look at those three passages together, God gave Jesus as payment and reward for his death on the cross great gifts. And then the Apostle Paul takes the language of Scripture and changes it a little bit that Jesus Christ gave those great gifts to his church. There's grace and more grace as we're going to get to in just a moment. There's so much grace under the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The state of truth in the world was darkness before Jesus came with full gospel light. To be under the law of Moses is to be in the dark. Animal sacrifices? Are you kidding me? Priests that die every few years? Are you kidding me? A covenant that says, do this and live. Are you kidding me? There was darkness. And so it says that the gospel of Jesus Christ and John and Jesus and the apostles preaching brought great light. John just taught, repent. Get down in the water and show me that you're sincere about your repentance. And believe on the one that's coming after me. He's full of grace and truth and he'll take care of everything else. I mean, what a different religion. That was different than Moses. Did uh, John the Baptist need to put a veil over his face when he was baptizing? No, because the way to God was being opened up. God was unapproachable under the Old Testament. 
So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, or when Moses went into the tabernacle and the presence of the Lord was there, when he came out, remember I read it to you last Lord's Day, to put a veil over his face. No veil with John the Baptist. Where was the glory of God? Standing next to him, his cousin that was six months younger, that he baptized in the Jordan River. Right. And what, what, what kind of statements did that cousin make? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. And even if a beast gets close to this mountain, thrust him through with darts. That's the Old Testament being introduced. How about this one? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. Unbelievable difference in religions. The context needs to be kept in view for you to understand verse 16 perfectly. It's to keep verse 17 in mind which is Moses' law compared to the grace of the New Testament. The emphasis by context is dispensational benefits, not legal or vital things. And we are not dispensationalists except if you want to say that we're three-sevenths of a dispensationalist. C.I. Schofield and the rest of those poor men believe that there were seven dispensations, but the Bible teaches three. There was a dispensation that lasted 2,500 years from Adam to Moses. It's identified by that expression in Romans 5.14, then there's 1,500-year dispensation from Moses to Christ, and John the Baptist ended Moses. He began the ending of Moses because it was a 40-year period of transition to the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the gospel millennium that lasts from Jesus Christ's first coming to Jesus Christ's second coming. There is nothing else. Amen. We are in the last times. We have now received a kingdom which cannot be moved, and therefore we ought to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. A new religion, a new religion was bursting forth in brilliant glory and light by Jesus Christ, the light of the world, changing things drastically. Remember his conversation with the woman of Samaria? She said, we know that you Jews think that God ought to be worshipped in Jerusalem, but we worship him here on Mount Gerizim. Because remember, I had taught you in the past, they had tried to duplicate the temple worship of God among the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim, which was only a few miles away from Mount Zion and the Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped. There's these two religions going on. Jesus said, woman, you Samaritans don't have a clue what you're worshipping. And he was right. And so whenever you hear me say something, and I am not the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm going to tell you something, I am his ambassador. And I like to speak the same way he does about the things he's already condemned. And though they were a monotheistic religion, worshiping Jehovah God, Jesus said, woman, you don't have a clue what you're worshiping. And, and what you think is true over there in Jerusalem, very shortly they're not going to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth either. God is seeking those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, because it's an internal religion that is not held either on Gerizim or on Mount Zion on this earth. And it's in truth, because it's all about the one speaking to you, not about Moses. And so there was this great transition of religion taking place, and we should rejoice that we have heard the joyful sound and that we have believed it. And that we love it at this hour. I love it. And I trust that you love it with me. So it says in verse 16, And of His fullness have all we received. Who received Christ's fullness? All true believers, which are John's audience. 
John is writing to increase the faith of those that believed on him. We do not need to worry about active or passive voice in this expression since both are definitely here, with the emphasis being on the practical phase of salvation, which is actively received by believers on Jesus Christ. Because to believe on Jesus Christ would mean you left the sacrificial system of Moses to follow the Son of God. And thus the persecution of Jews in that 40-year period of time. So believers, when they hear the message, they believe and they are relieved. What did, what did Paul... Look at Romans 10 if you want to see a reference about this. Listen to what Paul said. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So there's knowledge out there that they don't know yet, which means they're still following Moses' law. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that is elect, to everyone that is justified, to everyone that is regenerated, To everyone that believes, you can be elect, justified, regenerated like these and still keeping the law of Moses because you're ignorant of the truth. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Amen. Verse 16, of his fullness have all we received. We love John because John tells us exactly why he wrote. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice he doesn't say, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may take my gospel and epistles and pass them out at the mall and get others to believe on the name of the Son of God. He does not say that. He is writing to believers to tell them more about Jesus Christ so that they would believe on Him yet more, which would increase their assurance that they had eternal life. That is a wonderfully kind message from God to His children, and John told us that. Romans 10 is a perfect cross-reference for John chapter 1 and verse 16, of His fullness have all we received. When we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it saves us from any other method of salvation, any other religion, and brings us into the true religion, brings peace to our souls, and a, and a grace in which we stand that is superior to any other. And then it says, and grace for grace. What have we received? What has Jesus Christ done for us? What has been the benefit or the result of the Word being made flesh? What happened because the Word was made flesh? What happened by God sending His Son to earth? What happened by us beholding the glory as of the only begotten Son of God? Grace and truth were delivered to us by a special ambassador sent from heaven, the Son of God. We were blessed abundantly with grace and truth. And in case you're wondering about how much grace there was, the Apostle John adds by the Holy Spirit, and grace for grace. There's just an abundant oversupply of grace. And so we have this little expression, like in the Bible, where we have the expression, Abba, Father. That is a repetition for emphasis. There's no change in the meaning. Abba is Aramaic for father. Father is from the Greek for father. It's father, father. Abba, father. 
a, a repetition for emphasis. God is not just our God, our Creator, and the supreme being of the universe, but He's our Father. But in this case, it's grace for grace. Zechariah chapter 4, God sent a messenger, an angelic messenger to Zerubbabel, telling him about the rebuilding of the temple. That when they built that temple, there would be shoutings of grace, grace, unto it. A repetition of grace. I hope that last night, if you read Romans chapter 5, you looked for the word also. You looked for the word abound. Because the also is there. Look at Romans chapter 5 briefly. I love Romans 5. Romans 5 is one of the simplest, most grace-packed chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an incredible transaction there. Paul has taken four chapters to fully explain us being justified in the sight of God by God being at peace with us. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Once God's at peace with us, then we can be at peace in our souls with God. By whom also, notice verse 2, I want you to notice the also. By whom also, now wait a minute, shouldn't we be content with justification in verse 1? We're saved from hell? We need to live in this world. So it says, by whom also, who's the whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Your conversion and your joy in it is by the Lord Jesus Christ and it's another phase, stage, blessing of grace. Grace for grace. The grace just keeps pouring out. Verse 3, what do those first words mean? Do they mean grace for grace to you? And not only so. Not only are we justified in verse 1, not only are are we standing in the grace of God in verse 2, we have more grace being piled up in verse 3. And it's about getting us through our tribulations by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us to shed abroad in our hearts that God loves us, so that when all the world is falling away from around us and the mountains are being thrown into the sea and everything is turned upside down in your life, there is inside you the person of God Himself shedding abroad, I love you. Don't worry about a thing. I love you. Don't worry about a thing. I know that the ground is trembling under you right now. I know that your heart is beating faster. I know your blood pressure is rising. I know that you're fearful, but I love you. And when, the, when it says the Holy Spirit sheds it abroad, if we are walking in the Holy Ghost and submissive to His leadings, it is a loud voice Amen. declaring that to us. You want to talk about grace for grace? If you want to cross-reference for this part of verse 16, it's Romans 5. How about verse 11? And not only so. Now wait a minute. Paul, you just can't keep doing this to us. You can't start out with justification, which has been the most important doctrine that you ever imagined in the first four chapters. If you read the first four chapters, justification is the greatest doctrine of salvation. Paul starts with justification in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, adds to it in verse 2, adds to it in verse 3, then starts piling on. He just simply starts piling on. You know what's said in here. 
He died for the ungodly. He died for His enemies. We're reconciled to Him. If His death benefited us, how much more is His life going to benefit us? It just keeps building up. Verse 10, then it gets to 11, and this isn't fair. And not only so, after that long list of piling on, is there anyone else to jump on this pile? And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And so he just keeps adding grace for grace for grace for grace for grace. You get down in here about the second Adam, and it says in verses like 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. There's an increase in quality of the second Adam over the first Adam in verse 15. There's an increase in quantity of the second Adam over the first Adam in verse 16, because Adam sinned once, Jesus Christ paid for countless sins. In verse 17, there's an improvement in reigning power, because if Adam's death reigned by one, much more. Do you hear much more? Grace for grace for grace for grace. Oh, it's called up. They which receive abundance of grace in that 17th verse. Okay, we get to verse 20. Is, is Paul going to leave off yet? No, not quite. Verse 20, he's thinking of John 1.17. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Why did God give the law of Moses? To get people saved? God gave the law of Moses to get people condemned. So they would need a Savior. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Did the offense abound when you read the Old Testament? Do you ever run into anything you haven't done right? How many times a minute? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Okay, I'm sorry. That's Romans 5. That's the commentary. I'd rather read God's commentary on a verse of Scripture than anyone else's commentary. That's grace for grace. There's a superabundant overflow of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I preached to you His unsearchable riches in a sermon series a year ago. His riches of grace are unsearchable. The economic theory of the value of a thing, and we look at it from countless different measures, is greater in Christ. It's incredible. It's unsearchable. The opportunity cost, there is none in Christ. The diminishing marginal utility, there is none in Christ. It's grace for grace and builds on grace. How broad, how long, how deep, and how high is His grace in Christ Jesus. It reaches the lowest. It takes us to the highest. It's stretched all the way to the Piedmont of the Carolinas. Thank you, Lord. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, is that the new covenant under Jesus Christ is better than anything under the old covenant. Adoption, 1 John chapter 3, the first couple of verses. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He who was rich became poor, that we who were poor might become rich. Is that grace for grace to you? This is the founder of our religion. Do you want to hear about the founder of their religions? Mohammed was an illiterate traitor. A traitor, to common sense, but I mean a traitor. T-R-A-D-E-R. All he did was walk around with camels and carry junk from one place to another. You want to talk about the founder of their religion? Did he come with grace and truth? There's no truth in the Koran. Is there any grace in it? If you want to go to heaven, then strap a bomb to you or your baby and lead them into a restaurant and blow people up. And you might get 72 palm trees. 
How about this? It's free. Does that make it grace? When it's demerited favor, it's free. For losers who are also repeat offenders. That is grace for grace. Verse 17. For, this is the explanation, and I, and I hope that I, I hope that it's making sense to you as I'm trying to tie these five verses together, what they really mean when it's talking about grace. I have not emphasized the grace of election. I haven't emphasized the grace of justification so much. I haven't emphasized the grace of regeneration because it's primarily the message of grace. Because that's what Moses brought was a message of condemnation, but Jesus brought a message of grace. Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses. That preposition, start opening up this verse, is tying us into verse 16. How we ought to understand the grace and truth of verse 14 and the grace in verse 16. For the law was given by Moses. The law of condemnation, Exodus chapter 20, being the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, being the repetition of the Ten Commandments. And the other 715 commandments given to Moses that he gave to the children of Israel. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John is writing this after Jesus came, after seeing his life, after hearing his gospel, after seeing him die, after seeing him resurrected, and seeing him ascend into heaven. He had this to say. There's a huge difference. There's a new religion in the earth. And it's the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though you were circumcised the eighth day, and though you have kept all the commandments of Moses, like Saul of Tarsus, you need to be baptized by a certain disciple named Ananias to be part of the religion of Jesus Christ. This is what God came to earth. The Word was made flesh and preached a new religion. He is the founder of it. He is the head of it. He's our Lord and our Savior. He's our brother and our friend. He's our husband. He is our everything. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If you go read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, it compares Jesus to Moses. Listen to the, just listen to the, uh, the beauty of these words. Hebrews chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. The, the heads of two religions, Moses, Christ. For this man, speaking of Jesus, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ as a son over his own house. Right. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Jesus Christ made up his own house of living stones and he was a son over it. Moses was just a servant in the Old Testament house of God. 
So there's that comparison. And Hebrews 3 and 4 are about that comparison. All that the Jews had. And if you were a Jew, leading up to Christ, you were blessed with a revelation of God unlike any other nation on earth. But all that the Jews had, temple worship, the altar of God, that he accepted the offerings there, the sacrificial system, all the ceremonies, the scriptures, the priests, the holy days, the laws, were from God. But they were declared by Moses. He was the mediator of the old covenant. Because remember, the people said, we don't want, to, we don't want God to talk to us any longer. Moses, you go talk to God, then come and tell us. And so Moses did that. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. John, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the message of Jesus? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the apostolic period of reformation that lasted 40 years, Jesus being the chief reformer. The difference of law and grace is enormous, exalting Jesus and his religion over Moses and his. 2 Corinthians 3 that I showed you recently shows that how can, if condemnation had some glory, how much more does salvation have? Because Moses' law did have some glory. Mount Sinai altogether shook and was on fire like a blast furnace. But what about the glory of the new covenant in Jesus Christ? It came by Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law perfectly and applied it by his perfect teaching. He nailed Moses' ordinances to the cross and got rid of them. He opened the way to God forever with nothing left to do. When you read the prophecy of the 70 weeks, there were six things determined upon Israel. The bringing in of everlasting righteousness, the reconciliation for iniquity, the ending of transgressions, the putting away of sin. Jesus, the Messiah, did all that. Amen. Verse 18. What is religion all about? Seeing God, knowing God, pleasing God. The gods of the heathen have been seen. Every time you see a crescent moon, you've just seen the God of the Muslims. That's why they stick that little thing on top of all their mosques. What do you think it's there for? To give them light? That's where they got their idea of Allah. No man hath seen God at any time. But everyone that is religious, everyone that thinks about, I'm a creature, there has to be a creator. I have a conscience, a conscious existence, and I believe that God has eternal power and a Godhead, eternal power. They have to worry and wonder about the afterlife. That's where religion comes from. But no man hath seen God at any time. John wants to tell us. He's bringing his introduction to a close. He's just told us that religion was introduced by the Son of God, a new religion that superseded Moses' religion that was far better than Moses' religion. No man hath seen God at any time. We could go through the Bible and tell you that he's called the invisible God. We could show you where he told Moses that no man can see me and live. God in essence and nature is an invisible spirit. No man has or can see him. This axiom is common throughout the Bible. 
that no man has seen God or can see Him. Any visual representation in the Old Testament is simply assumed for man's benefit for their eyeballs to fix on something. God is no more a dove than He is a burning bush. Those were just visible representations for us to see something, to know that something was taking place, unusual, to get our attention. He is no more the man visiting Abraham in the doorway of his tent than the one that wrestled Jacob. When God revealed his glory to Moses, did Moses see anything or did Moses hear things? He heard things. And what did he hear? His moral attributes of graciousness, forgiveness, and long-suffering. You ever want to see them wrapped up in one person? Read about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they brought to Jesus a woman taken in adultery in the very act. John 8, 1 through 11. There's our Lord at work. You should read it. No man hath seen God at any time. So how can our religion be such that we get to see God? No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. A bosom relationship is developed in the rest of this gospel. And that bosom relationship is between John and Jesus. A bosom relationship is when you're the closest one to him and you are right there to learn of him the best, to know the most about him, to have the most intimate relationship with him as John did with Jesus. So we call him the beloved disciple because he was so close to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Is he close to God? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this text, as John brings his introduction to a close, says he is in the bosom of the Father. Where does Jesus sit at this hour? At, at the right hand of God. Do you think he knows what's going on in heaven? I know, brother, I'm almost speaking like a fool, but I'm just trying to get everyone... Is he sitting at the right hand of God? Does he know God? He hath declared him. He had the measure of the Holy Spirit above all others. Look at 334. I'm almost done. Hold with me just a couple of minutes. 334. For he whom God hath sent, John 334, our new religion, by a man that God sent, for he... Not John the Baptist. For he whom God hath sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, speaketh the words of God. We have had declared to us the religion of God from God by Jesus Christ. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. He has an unlimited portion of the Holy Spirit. So he knows the mind of God. He knows the will of God. I don't have time to run all the verses that we are going to encounter in this gospel where Jesus is going to say repeatedly, the words that I speak unto you are the words that I have heard that my Father gave me to speak. And then He's going to say, if you don't believe me for the words that I speak to you from the Father, then believe me for the works that the Father gave me to do. If you can't do it with your ears, then do it with your eyes. The Father has given me all these things to do, and I do them because Jehovah gave a new religion 2,000 years ago for His adopted children by predestination that they might know Him much more than the patriarchs 
2,500 years of world history than Israel, 1,500 years of world history, ever knew Him. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the apostles. Everything Jesus had to declare from God, He declared to His apostles. If you are worried that they might have forgotten something, you haven't read John 14 through 16, which are primarily, which is primarily about the gift of the Holy Spirit to the apostles when Jesus said, I will bring all things to your remembrance. And then they wrote them down. God does not bring all things to my remembrance, and He doesn't bring all things to your remembrance, but He did bring all things to the apostles' remembrance, and they wrote them down. Do you know how blessed we are to have the religion of Jehovah administered, ordained in the hands of the bishop, the Savior, the Lord, the Prince of the kings of the earth, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. No man hath seen God at any time, nor shall we. But do you want to see God? John 1.18, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he has the closest relationship possible with him, has declared him to us. He is the express image of his person. He is the brightness of his glory. I'm, this is quoting Hebrews 1.3. So many different things could be said. It is the holy child, Jesus, that conveys to us all that we need to see. Jesus told Philip, when Philip said, show us the Father and it will suffice us. Remember from last Sunday? Lord, show us the Father and I'll be satisfied. Philip. How long have I been with you, brother? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How much should we love reading the Gospels? And at the moment, I mean the other three as well. Because they tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing in the New Testament Gospel that did not come from or through Jesus. Think about it. Just His life, His doctrine, his death, his resurrection, and his apostles that he sent out. It's all through Jesus Christ. What will you do with the Son of God? You should believe God's testimony and witness of him, otherwise you make God a liar. You want to try that on? I look forward to watching you try it on. We'll be there shortly soon. I charge you not to try it. Believe on the name of the Son of God. The Bible would say of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, it says suppose ye, think with me, of how much sore punishment should be poured out upon one that denies the Son of God in comparison to someone that broke the law of Moses. Do you know what it was like to break the law of Moses? They died without mercy under two or three witnesses. These are New Testament words that I'm quoting to you from Hebrews chapter 10. You can also go to Hebrews chapter 2. You can also go to Hebrews chapter 12 for the same thing is said repeatedly of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who turns his back on the Lord Jesus Christ then breaking the law of Moses. And the the law of Moses was punished severely. You should be baptized in his glorious name which is an oath of allegiance to live for him. You should love His kingdom and His church and His people. You should obey all His commandments. You should prove your eternal life by fruitful living and loving and serving others. And as we'll look in a few minutes after our break, you should have a marriage that reflects the glory of God and salvation by Jesus Christ. Let our marriages be full of grace and truth because of all the grace and truth that Jesus Christ has shown us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.